podcast about movies. Are we talking about Stir of Echoes with our great friend Clementine Ford, who's been on the show several times, who's always a joy to have on board? Yes. Of course we are. I'm one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I'll soon be joined by my wonderful co-host, Sarah Marshall. But You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies, is where we use a movie with a guest as a jumping off point to either talk about the movie and talk about the feelings it evokes or use the movie to talk about bigger themes and uh, uh, broader ideas. And this is kind of one of those episodes, although we do get into many of the specifics of Stir of Echoes itself. Stir of Echoes, if you don't know, is a 1999 American supernatural horror film. It's written and directed by David Cope. It's based on the 1958 novel of the same name by Richard Matheson. It stars Kevin Bacon, Catherine Irby, Ileana Douglas, and Kevin Dunn. Our guest today, like I said up top, is Clementine Ford, who we love. Clementine was one of our very first guests when we talked about Top Gun. She was on when we talked about Fargo. She just always brings it. (laughs) Clem is an Australian feminist writer. She's got a book coming out about how bad of a deal marriage is for women. Uh, She's written several other books. She has podcasts. Like She just is prolific. Look for information on what Clem is putting out into the world linked in the show notes. I'm so glad she's here. She's always a blast to have. How are you doing, by the way? How's it going out there? Are you following us on social? Are you following us on Twitter at YouAreGoodPod or Instagram? Have you left a review on Apple Podcasts saying this is one of my favorite shows? I love love this whole thing. I love what they're doing. They get me. Have you, have you done that? If not, uh, no worries. But if you have it in you, I'd love it if you would consider doing so. They tell me that it's somehow good. I don't know. I don't know how. (laughs) Speaking of good, you, my friend, are good. How's it going out there? Let us know. Uh, Reach out. We would love to hear from you. You Are Good, I should let you know, is made possible by your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us uh, by subscribing on Patreon or on Apple subscriptions. We appreciate you. You make this whole thing possible. I've said some version of this many times in the past, but we are writers. We're we're journalists. We are artists. We are uh, musicians. Thank you so much for doing what you do by supporting the show in these ways. And... You get bonus episodes. We just released a bonus episode about uh, some spooky things to pay attention to in October. Maybe a good reference point for things to uh, uh, watch or take in. We're also going to be releasing very soon in the next couple of days, a list of movies that maybe you should spend the rest of October in the October vibe with the movies that we're going to share with you on Patreon and via Apple subscriptions. Thank you so much for supporting us. We really do mean it. It means a lot. One thing I should note, uh, this episode is rich in content warnings. The movie uh, deals with an attempted sexual assault. It ends in a murder. There's lots of other murder. There's lots of scary things and scary imagery. We see a woman's fingernail break off of her hand a handful of times. Uh, It is a lot. You know, as always, we try to talk about these things gingerly, but we get into big themes. We get into uh, uh, misogyny and misogynistic violence with Clem in this uh, conversation. So know that that is coming. If this is something you're not ready for or don't want to indulge, we have many other episodes that don't require these content warnings. And I hope you will check those out. But just know that we try to talk about these things as gingerly and respectfully as we possibly can when we do. And that's all you get to hear from me before we get into Stir of Echoes with Clementine Ford. So let's do this. 
Hello, Sarah Marshall. Ooh, Alex Steed. So go say hello. Have you seen any good movies lately about a like mystical bisexual psychology witch Mm. who convinces her brother-in-law through hypnosis to see beyond the patriarchy. Have you seen anything like that? I have. And you know, what's funny is that I I thought this movie was the same movie as frequency for like 22 years. So, Oh, but it's not. (laughs) I similarly thought this was a different movie until I saw it. What movie did you think it was? Well, I had a lot of imagery from this movie in my head, and I was remembering the movie The Gift. Oh, yeah. Which it is not that. I loved that movie when I was 12 or whatever. Well, anyway, we're not talking about those movies. We're talking about Stir of Echoes, starring Kevin Bacon and Catherine Irby of What About Bob and Kevin Dunn (laughs) of Veep. And Ghostbusters 2. And Ghostbusters 2. And it's adapted, I believe, from a work by Richard Matheson, who is an extremely adapted sci-fi fantasy writer. His work has also been adapted into Somewhere in Time and I Am Legend and like 40 other things. Who brought this movie to us, Sarah? This movie was brought to us in a beautiful wicker basket by our (laughs) beloved masculinity scholar, Clementine Ford. Hello. Hello. Oh, it's so exciting to be back here with you guys. It's one of my favorite parts of my week is listening to your podcast. You know that I'm a huge, huge fan and I'm so blessed to have been on it a few times. We're so happy to have you back. Absolutely. And your episodes are some of everybody's favorites, including our favorites as well. (laughs) Oh, thank you. So Clementine, um, tell us a bit about who you are and what you've been up to since we last chatted. I think we last chatted about Fargo. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. That is correct. We did. We did. We're three for three on movies that are studies of masculinity and its discontents. (laughs) We are. It's almost like I'm a stereotype, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It's almost like movies are a stereotype. (laughs) Yes. It's almost like we all find this very interesting. (laughs) Well, for anyone who's listening, you'll obviously be able to tell I have an Australian accent. So I'm here in uh, Australia speaking to you. I'm a writer, a feminist, a podcaster. I'm basically every men's rights activists worst nightmare <laughs> and I was the start of the year like a big thing of, about my personality at the moment is at the start of the year I was diagnosed with ADHD which you mentioned the bisexual which <laughs> realizing as an adult that you have ADHD is a little bit like when you feel comfortable to come out as bisexual or queer when you're young in that you like it explains so much about yourself but also you need to tell every single person you meet mm-hmm. that yes. you have it and diagnose them with it too. Yeah, so. Yes, totally. <laughs> well, yeah. And, you know, I also thought you were going to say that it's like <laughs> the part in Teen Witch or Harry Potter or something, RIP, our ability to enjoy Harry Potter. <laughs> Not that it wasn't always <laughs> weird. Why is there a dorm for evil children? Why are they destined to be evil? But anyway, the part in so many young adult stories where you realize that you're a wizard. And it's the same thing where you're like, this is why this has been hard for me. Mm. And these are the things that I can do if I stop trying to be not teen witch. See, this is one of the reasons why I just adore you so much, Sarah, as well, because I listened to you talk about these movies that were so formative in your childhood. And I'm like, are we the same person? (laughs) It's like a little gift for you, you know, when something like that happens. Like whenever you mention teen witch, I just remember how amazing it was to watch Louise and her transformation. And I wanted to be here so badly. 
I just watched this wonderful, and I shared it with Sarah, I watched this wonderful Curtis Connor video that was essentially a you're wrong about, about furries. And one of the things that he brought up, which was great and not at all surprising the second he said it, is I think there are studies that show that some, somewhere around like 89% of furries identify as neuroatypical. And I mean, I first of all, I believe that heterosexuality is itself like an aberration. Like I think it's so rare and strange to find it in its purest form. And it's mostly a dance, right? Because it's not about yeah. your like sexuality. It's about like what shirts you wear and what shirts you iron. And do you know how to iron? Like this is all ceremony. Exactly. To your point, Clem, I do think that the Venn diagram of the various fun ways our brains work and our identities, there's obvious overlap there for a lot of different reasons. So this is just recognizing our listeners who are queer and or furry and or both and or have ADHD and or autistic. <laughs> yes, all of that. But I also really want to get in front of the issue of furries and like preemptively say that I adore furries and I Amen. it's terrible how everyone makes fun of furries. They're like, you know, it's normal rape. You know, what's weird furries. furries. And it's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> how did we get here? You know, it's weird. Friends getting together and doing stuff they like together. That's strange. I know. And hurting one yeah just and just just loving a hobby like just people being shamed for the things that they like it's so I don't know like I feel like the older I get the more I'm obviously like when you're young you're so subject to people's judgment and you're so desperate to fit in all the time but the older you get the more you're like I just want to be (laughs) joyful about things and if someone likes to dress up as a furry and hang out with their other furry friends Good for them. Amen. Good for them. I love that. Yes. Sarah, for those who, like us before two hours ago, Mm -hmm. had never seen Stir of Echoes. Yes. Can you do everyone the solid of uh, walking people through the plot? What's this movie about? What happens? What's the vibe? I would love to. This movie starts slow and then gradually rises in pitch and then it like really escalates in the last 12 minutes, <laughs> I would say, <laughs> in a really wonderful way. Like, this movie really got me. And I'll also say that while I was watching this movie, I was attempting to snake my drain, which turned out to be, like, a very apt thing to be doing Absolutely. while watching the second half of this. <laughs> so Stir of Echoes is about Kevin Bacon being a, a normal lineman, a Chicago lineman married to his slightly goth wife, Patricia Irby. And basically, he's putting his son to bed. His son, very obviously from the beginning, is that most beloved of horror movie motifs, a creepy little boy who talks to the dead. Classic of the genre. Something I love about this movie and that feels so weird to me is that all the talking to the dead is done by not just little boys, which you see a lot, but an adult man and women never get in on it. Like, I don't think I've ever seen a movie where it's not a woman's job to talk to the dead at some point. That's just like our thing. And it's like how being a nurse or being a teacher is demeaned because it's about feelings. Like it's a feelings job. It's so refreshing to see Kevin Bacon be like just a normal like Joe six pack medium. (laughs) (laughs) And so he and his wife, they put their son to bed. 
his Alex, as you described her bisexual stoner, witch sister, Ileana Douglas comes over, immediately notices that his wife is pregnant. This also never comes up again, which is really funny. Yeah. Unless I miss something while I was snaking my drain. (laughs) They go to a party, I believe hosted or at least attended by Kevin Dunn, who I always love to see in things. He's always playing the same guy, but like a different aspect of that guy, I would argue, for 30 years, which reached its apex in Veep. (laughs) So at this party, they're like being parents, hanging out. They're across the street. So they have the baby monitor with them, which is such a great detail. Which for anyone who saw that and thought that that was like not a thing that used to happen or is not aware of people who still do that. I don't I, I feel like that's a thing you could get arrested for now in the United States. I'm not entirely sure. My babysitter used to live next door Mm -hmm. and she was not a good babysitter for different reasons outside of this tell but she would call my house the apartment next door she'd come over she'd pick up the phone and have it off the hook so she could hear anything that happened so it served as a a telephone baby monitor so she could just go next door to her house where she had cable and she'd watch cable and then listen for whatever i was doing on her telephone just listen in case you fell off the roof or something yes yes exactly i was like 18 months like you would have to be like i'm being murdered help you were 18 months old i I thought you were gonna say you were like seven i was like a little baby no alex that's not good look i feel like i am a little bit you know like we're all of the generation where our parents left us in the car totally when they went to the supermarket you know and and now like as a mother myself i understand that the reason my mom took so long was because she was like if i don't spend four hours in the supermarket with those bloody ratty kids in the car away from me (laughs) then i might do a crime she was saving everyone yeah people are a little bit too sort of over the top about you know, being so fastidious with their kids now, but 18 months old with a phone off the hook. That makes me uncomfortable. That's Alex. really quite something. Someday, Sarah, we'll have my mom on this show and we'll go through every claim I've ever made <laughs> and see. Not, not just that she will cooperate, it, she'll just have extra juicy details that we don't have. Of course. I, yeah. She'll be like, no, I think you were 16 months yeah, old yeah, or something. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. She'll be like, well, that, yeah, that's what I told her to do. I gave her the tip. Well, my, so my parents. <laughs> came home early once and Uh that's how this arrangement got both found out and put an end to by way of sort of how it was going i think i'm pretty sure my dad was not happy yeah there is a babysitter in this movie as well there is it It all comes back to babysitters (laughs) also when this babysitter came over i was like oh yeah and then the babysitter sees the ghost classic amityville horror no no women seeing ghosts incredible like truly unprecedented for me (laughs) so As a party trick, because everyone's making fun of her for like being woo woo and taking like a hypnotherapy class, which I I assume this is at the like Lincoln Park School of Hypnotherapy, like one of those (laughs) that you see during the ad breaks on Maury. Ileana Douglas, the wild card in any movie she's in, (laughs) hypnotizes Kevin Bacon. This is really a lovely sequence, I thought. And he like wakes up. He doesn't remember anything about the hypnosis. Everyone was like, wow, you're like super hypnotizable. That was amazing. And he's like, what happened? And then like a door has been opened in him. He's got an opening in him. Anyway. um, (laughs) I got you. You got me. Anyone interested in these themes should read Men, Women, and Chainsaws by Carol Clover and especially the chapter on Witchboard. So he starts having kind of visions, flashes of intuition, And he starts communicating with the teen girl ghost 
who his son has also been communicating with, who we learn when they get a babysitter played by Paris from Gilmore Girls, who (laughs) freaks out when the little boy talks about talking with Samantha. She like takes their son to the train station where her mom works because Samantha's her older sister who's been missing for six months. And she's like, Kevin Bacon must have killed Samantha. And Kevin Bacon's like, no, I didn't. But like, I'm putting the pieces together. And we also learned that Kevin Dunn's son is a star baseball player. I think football. Football. I think it's football. Yeah. I can't really tell from casual references. Well, there's the scene at the block party. There's so many. I know we'll get into this, but there's so many. Like scenes to do with like hyper masculinity in this yes. movie. And I don't know, like it's kind of like a working class neighborhood, mm-hmm. I guess, mm-hmm. with some rich people in it who own houses. Yes. But there's a scene in the block party where the two young teenage boys are like throwing the football at each other, like over the sea of people, which to me just as a, you know, obviously we don't have like American football here, but it just feels like a very American thing to see. Like I can imagine the director being like, yeah, now run now, throw the football now. So everyone knows that you're guys at school yeah this is like kevin bacon gets turned against the guys at yes. some point which is <laughs> which is great news which he's always been a little against you know he's a guy who does gymnastics in a warehouse fundamentally and it's revealed in total passing again a thing that doesn't get picked up is what he spent most of his time in school doing was playing the piano yeah i love that that's such a great moment he's not yeah. just like a dude in like a sad garage rock band like he is like a devoted musician yeah i mean kevin Kevin Bacon is so compelling and he he shouldn't work as a sex symbol, but he very obviously also should work mm-hmm. as a sex symbol. He's like Tom Cruise if Tom Cruise wasn't covered in demons and, you know, <laughs> legitimating a cult. Tom Cruise is like one of my weak spots. I know. Sarah, We've heard I know. Wait, I agree. He's Tom Cruise. And yet he's also Tom Cruise. But that is what makes him Tom Cruise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a professional Tom Cruise. So Kevin Bacon, when he, I read this interview with him and he said that when he moved to New York, to me, this just sums up who he is. He moved to New York in the 1970s and he was like, it's, it was just so exciting. You know, all the girls walked around and none of them wore bras. And I was like, that is cool because, you know, particularly like if the movie's about masculinity and stuff, there are so many men who, you know, Alex, you were saying before about heterosexuality is totally a construct and obviously people's sexuality is way more fluid than the world and it's bullshit allows them to be. But even just with men being afraid of like women's bodies being unleashed and Kevin Bacon's like, I loved them because his tits were just like hanging out everywhere. And I just feel like that's just Kevin Bacon to me. You know, he's like someone who you look at men and you're like, that guy would spend a lot of time going down on a woman. And I appreciate that about him. Yeah. And he'd enjoy it too. I feel like what you're saying is that you detect a wholesome interest in sex about him. (laughs) It's also like so easy to forget to the point that I basically forget it until every time I watch this movie, that Kevin Bacon was in Friday the 13th. He's he sure one of the was. few big stars to have been in like, you know, a big slasher movie. Yeah, he, he and Johnny Depp had the, had a similar yeah. series of fortunes of being in like the first in an important horror movie franchise and that being a launching point to like astronomical yeah. careers. Right. Also, Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. Yes, and it's interesting that Johnny course. Depp comes up because it's mm. like now we've listed two men who are like about Kevin Bacon's age. And I'm no expert on Kevin Bacon, but like... He seems like it, it, just in terms of like the huge like media spectacles that are or aren't in his life, he seems to be doing pretty well. <laughs> yes. 
Comparatively. Well, he's not a wife beater, so there's that. So there you go. And he's also not using the law as a tool of abuse. Yeah, as far as we know, that, and that's great. Although I'm so sorry that I can't believe I left her out, but Sigourney Weaver also. Sorry. Although some people would argue that's not a slasher. I would argue it is a slasher because it has all the hallmarks. Yes. So back to Kevin Bacon in the movie. He's continuing to communicate with this ghost. We are introduced at a block party to his landlord, who, due to the law of character economy, which I believe was what Roger Ebert called it, smart Alex like me are like, that's the murderer, obviously, because (laughs) he's there for one second just to establish that he owns that building. And I was like, and he's a cop. Yes. Which is very suspect. I didn't pick up on the fact that he was a cop. Huh. Maybe he wasn't because he's explaining the merits of being a landlord and he's not wealthy at all. He's just flipped a couple buildings with sort of like mortgage leverage. And he said, like, mm-hmm. even when I take off my uniform, I'm a landlord or something along those lines, which was like a really right. interesting sort of passing thing. And to Sarah's point, I thought I was like, this person has a two for American respectability coverage. He's a mm-hmm. cop and he's a mm-hmm. landlord to the point where we we should think at least in 1999 that he's not guilty of anything. Yeah. <laughs> And then, you know, he does turn out to be, you know, not one of our good guys. However, he's not the lone. I guess I was like, this movie is trying to trick me and it's simple and it's this guy. Ha ha. I figured it out. Solved you, movie. No. So basically the way this escalates is that Kevin Bacon receives more and more information and while his wife is away at her grandmother's funeral which whose death he like sensed as well he just goes batshit with a shovel and first digs up the whole backyard and then he realizes that he's got to go to menards and get a (laughs) jackhammer and jackhammer through the basement floor all over the basement i was watching this and i literally thought oh i must have misheard earlier they must own this house or else he would never do this and i was like no he is renting he's truly gone beyond life and death to be doing this (laughs) right because like now like now at least i mean i don't know they say that that apartment's like eight hundred dollars but like now at least you give a two to three month security deposit which is like Mm -hmm. whatever however many dollars and renting stuff has gotten worse i'm sure it was less extreme in the 90s but still it's a chunk you have a heart palpitation if you're moving a couch and it like scrapes a wall because you're positive your landlord's gonna get to keep like you know five thousand dollars as a result yeah he's going full jackhammer through the floor like that's where he's at emotionally yeah (laughs) (laughs) well because he's also been hypnotized again remember he went back to our favorite bisexual witch right and uh, interrupts a date with her, which obviously not great. She's like, I've just smoked a fatty, but fine. I just smoked a fatty with this fine Spanish lady. Farewell and adieu. I have to hypnotize my brother. <laughs> He's hypnotized again and he sees in the hypnosis cinema. Yeah. Dig. <laughs> yes. Yes. Which kind of is like, not to spoil the reveal, but it didn't really need to dig in the end, did he? <laughs> <laughs> The imagery in this movie is, is, is a lot of the stuff that they do effects wise is I think it works because it's all understated. Nothing is kind of like over mm-hmm. the top. There are some body horror moments for sure. But like mm-hmm. it's treatment of engagement of the supernatural and whatever that plane is, is like 
very tasteful. Mm-hmm. There's a beautiful scene where um he, you know, he's listening to the music because he's trying to figure out what the song is that he's hearing in his head. And he falls into a trance and he's back in the house pre them moving mm. in and Samantha's there. And just the way that they filmed it, you know, her body's sort of moving in that stilted, the grudge yes. way. And I thought, like, when I was rewatching this, because I've seen this movie so many times, I watched it when it came out and, you know, I've always found it, like, beautifully creepy. And I love a jump scare, but re-watching it this time, I realized how few actual jump scares there are in this movie. Sure. And that the fear factor of it all comes from this, just this underlying creepiness, mm-hmm. you know, the way that they're filming it, the effects... Yeah, and I love movies about ghosts where the ghosts are like, solve my death, help me. And it's not like a giant trick where like it works out positively as opposed to, you know, your ring ghosts. Yeah, they're like, we're not the bad ones. It's the humans, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And they're they're men. And they're right. Yeah, exactly. It's like, don't be afraid of the teen girl ghost. Be afraid of... Kevin Dunn. (laughs) Be afraid of your friends who brag a lot about how upstanding the neighborhood is. Yes. That's a lot. (laughs) If you see Kevin Dunn coming at you, watch out, girl. (laughs) (laughs) Not Kevin Dunn himself. You know, never mind. Um, (laughs) So, yes. So he finds in a wall this not at all grossly preserved mummy. Of the teenage girl who has been missing, who we also learned in the block party scene is developmentally disabled. So then Kevin Bacon holds her mummy hand and he does like a dead zone thing and he sees the circumstances of her death. And I think this movie like this is to me where we've been led on a path toward like there's a scary thing. And then when it gets to it, I'm like, yeah. This is a really scary thing that really happens to people. Mm. Like it Mm. feels very real in terms of how people die and just like the kinds of crimes that exist in the world and that you have to worry about. So Samantha was beckoned into the house when it was under construction by some teenage boys that she knew, including Kevin Dunn's son, the star football player. They've been drinking. They want to have sex with her. And, you know, they seem quite prepared to just go ahead and rape her if they need to. And Kevin Dunn's son, she agrees to kiss him and then he things start to go farther than that. She tries to get away. She falls. She panics. And the oh, and then it's not Kevin Dunn's son who's kind of the leader of this, but he's the one who the other boy is like, go get a jacket or something, cover her up so they can't hear her. So he gets some plastic sheeting because the house is under construction and covers her face up with that. And we all know why that's a bad idea, because whenever you get a like plastic bag, it says, don't give this to babies to play with, please. Yes, especially if you're monitoring them from the telephone next door. Yeah, your babysitter was like, here's some shopping bags for you to play with. Amuse yourself (laughs) here with this clear plastic and i'll be next door just holler if you start dying or anything so kevin bacon has this vision he understands what happened and then he has essentially an epic face-off first with kevin dunn who comes downstairs and is like oh what's going on oh my goodness and then reveals that yes he knows all about this and not only did this happen but he was the one who helped his son to cover this up 
And then it turns out that our neighborhood cop was in on it well. And it's really about the fathers helping their sons to keep this quiet. Mm. And Catherine Irby comes home right in the middle of all this and walks in. She started going through her bag and I was like, she can't have a cell phone. That would be ridiculous. And then she pulls out a knife and I was like, yeah. So there, there is like one really problematic character in this, yeah. which is the, the magical black mm-hmm. man. And I'm, I'm, gonna be, I'm trying to be really careful about how I say that because it's the trope, you know, it's like any black person in a movie about ghosts. Yeah. Yeah. People, they know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's a pretty racist trope. Anyway, the magical black man sees the little kid at the cemetery and he recognizes in him like another guy who sees ghosts. There's no, you're right. There's no women in this movie. You see ghosts. He says, send daddy to me, which by the way, send daddy, send daddy. It's very creepy, which is what we all say about Kevin Bacon. And she goes, cause she's, she's obviously worried about Kevin Bacon because he's like going crazy and he's drinking a lot of orange juice mm-hmm. and she turns up with the knife because she's, I don't know, she's in downtown Chicago mm-hmm. and she's also in an unfamiliar environment. And that unfamiliar environment is witchcraft. And it's when she's at home, she's, she's gone home for a grandmother's funeral and the son says to her, you forgot your bag. Mm. And she takes the bag with her because the son knows that she needs the knife in the bag. Right. Mm. That's amazing. That's great. I love how the kid probably knows how all of this is going to pan out like from the totally. beginning. And he's just like, I'll let them figure it out for themselves. I have Power Rangers to watch. <laughs> well, and to your point, Clem, about the trope that you're referring to, I know that Stephen King was extremely influenced by Matheson's work. Mm. And the dynamic here is The Shining. I mean, like the dynamic is mm. the obviously different outcome with regard to what happens with the father and son mm. who have the same ability but it's this a guy, nice dad with a sledgehammer right this this <laughs> guy is our scatman crothers this is the same role that scatman crothers plays in the shining which is he's yes. the one who like can see the ability mm. and explains to everyone including us what is happening with mm-hmm. the magic similar mm. yeah, s- similar trope mm. down to the way he just engages the son it's very it's very similar yeah mm. okay so to finish my summary and then you know, fill in the blanks, like frog DNA. Maggie comes home. She stabs a bad guy in the foot with her knife. And Kevin Dunn, at the last second, betrays his fellow men and rescues the Kevin Bacons from the scary cop and his scary son. And it ends with, first, the ghost of Samantha walking away looking like she's in a truly great mood. Like she has the expression of someone who's like, I'm going to go take a selfie with the bean. She's got her new jacket <laughs> I mean, or her jacket that she'd lost. She's ready to go. Yeah. Mm. She's like, I finally got my jacket and glasses back. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like great. It's like way better than like she walks into the light, you know, like I it thought that, that was like a super great, you mm. know, like things are back to normal. And then our final ending which I love how half-assed this movie is about being scary. It's like, yeah, we're done being scary. It's fine. But then it's like, oh, and then the little boy, they're in the car and they're moving, but he's hearing all the voices of all the other presumably mostly dead teenage girls Mm. in various Chicago land basements is my interpretation of it. And my only question is, where is Stir of Echoes, the HBO Max original series, or maybe like Plex or something? It would be great. I'm pretty sure they made a sequel, which I've never yes. seen, um, oh, yeah. which is unusual because I, I love a trashy sequel. 
Sarah, I was saying to you that this movie spends like the entirety, right from the first scene, it spends its entirety being like tension Mm -hmm. created by supernatural encounter. Mm -hmm. And then the last like 15 minutes, maybe, is towny tension. Yeah, towny horror. Towny male tension in particular. And then again, it's like, oh yeah, we're a supernatural thing. Like, let's have mm-hmm. the kid here. <laughs> let's, let's do that. But the the um I'm genuinely curious, Clem, what what brings this to us and and why is this a movie that you love? I mean, yeah, I watched this movie when it came out, and I mean obviously I watched The Sixth Sense as well, and I was completely blown away by the ending of The Sixth Sense in that kind of, whoa, I did not predict this kind of way that that a lot of people were at the time and that now when you rewatch it, you're like, this is so obvious and M. Night Shyamalan is, you know, very hacky. But I feel like it also like helped make the culture of twists we live in now, where like now every second Mm. new horror movie, I'm like, yes, okay, fine. (laughs) Ah." Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I guess... The reason that I loved this movie so much at the time and I still love it so much is that a lot of it is very kind of hit you over the head with the toxic masculinity, but a lot of it is also very subtle. Mm -hmm. And I think in 1999, I mean, maybe watching this movie now, it feels like then the real horror is toxic masculinity. It's maybe a little bit on the nose, but it's not something that we were really seeing at all in 1999. Like the idea of making Mm -hmm. young men the villains in this particular way, mm-hmm. I think was pretty transgressive. And particularly, as you said, like the cop slash landlord, right. two respectable jobs mm-hmm. for American males. He's the real baddie. I mean, I feel like watching it now, it's interesting that he's a line man because I don't know if you guys have read that following that Buzzfeed thing. There's a lot of like drama going no. on in the line man world right no. now. What's apparently. going on? I don't know a lot about it, but so Florida had the big storm, the hurricane, and all of these linemen from outside of Florida travel down to Florida to, you know, help get the power back on. And then all of these wives of linemen on TikTok, and they call themselves line wives, like this bizarre sort of compulsion that some women have to really perform their heterosexual marriages to the point of making their entire personality about their marriage. The line wives are angry because they're, uh, you know, their line man husbands are going on dating apps and women are dating their husbands. And of course, instead of like blaming their husbands for that, the line wives are saying, you stay away from my man. You can't have him. Go and get your own line man. So is there like a TikTok trend of like, don't bang linemen? support line wives i think i mean i I haven't followed it closely but apparently you can fall down uh you know a few rabbit holes and spend a few hours learning about this which i may do at some point but i think that you know you mentioned before sarah about his wife is pregnant and then we never hear about it again and i guess the function of that is that kevin bacon in this movie is a very clear example of working class male american hero Mm -hmm. who feels disenfranchised and disenchanted with his life you know yeah like we get that sort of throwaway line that when he was in high school he loved to play piano and so you feel like there's this there's this other side to him that he's never been able to explore but it kind of translates in this she has that conversation with him where she's like she says you know i don't feel like our life is particularly stupid Mm -hmm. and it's an interesting representation yet again of you know which we see a lot in films that men who feel like their lives have been reduced 
to just having their job and just having their family, even though it's also part of this kind of stereotypical trope of the American man who's very committed to his family and the working class hero who works in construction, you know, they're building the roads, they're building America. But he, he's been denied somehow like this great adventure of that, you know, maybe men with more privilege get to have. And the women are the ones who are like, well, I love our family. This is enough for me. Why is it not enough for you? I think that that's probably where the pregnancy comes in is that he's confronted through this. Yeah. You know, we open the movie with him essentially feeling like he's not doing enough with his life, like he's not having enough of a life. And then this ghost appears in his brain that allows him to not only do more, actually be something like solve a murder, but also gets to be a hero in a way that he doesn't feel like he is when he's up an electricity pole cutting wires or whatever. And to your point, like he's like, he's fixing American infrastructure. Like he's like the, yes. But he's unappreciated. He's unappreciated and unfulfilled. He's also when, you know, in comparison with these two other guys, he's renting a house from one of them. So he doesn't even have the ability to buy a house for his family. You know, the American dream. And also when they, when they leave at the end of the movie, after he's done this great thing of solving this girl's murder and, you know, avenging her death and they leave the house and they leave the neighborhood. He has said, I think earlier on in the movie that he's never been out of the neighborhood. Like he's just been there his whole life. Right. She, I, I, you know, Douglas says something along the lines of like, I know you've just spent your entire life walking six blocks of this neighborhood, but believe it or not, there's more to the world or something along those lines. Yeah, that's right. So it's, it's sort of about his kind of transition into being like a real person, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just find that, I mean, I'm writing this book at the moment about marriage and specifically why I think it's really bad for women. Mm -hmm. And so as part of that, I've been looking at a lot of the kind of dynamics between men and women and what men gain from marriage when they marry women in typical scenarios. And it's this idea, I think, that for men, adventure is out there in the world. You know, it's out there in the Wild West. They've got to go and conquer Mm -hmm. things. And it's never found in the domestic space. It's never supposed to be found in the domestic space. But Adrian Rich, you know, there's obviously the great feminist lesbian 1970s poet. Adrian Rich has this great quote where she says that I'm paraphrasing, but she says basically that the reason women have been married throughout history is because they've been forced to mm-hmm. obviously, but also this is how they've economically found survival. They needed marriage in order to protect their children. They needed marriage in order to fulfill their own economic needs, but also the way that you get them to commit to it is by presenting heterosexuality as the great adventure mm-hmm. for women mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. duty and fulfillment mm-hmm. as being part of that. And mm-hmm. I, I feel like, like a ghost in your house, I'm seeing dynamics between men and women everywhere now. <laughs> <laughs> watching this movie, I think that that's so beautifully portrayed or the tragedy of that is so beautiful. And the fury of that too, for me as a woman is that for him, he's like, my life is not enough. I need an adventure. And that's such a mm-hmm. common story to present for men and to fulfill that, uh, you know, it's, it's such a trope of like plot lines, but for her, she's like, well, my family's enough. Right. For women, family is always meant to be enough and domesticity is always meant to be the goal because that's our great adventure supposedly. Whereas men 
always need something outside of that in order to fulfill themselves. In that pivot point too, from the conversation that you talked about where he says several times, he kind of indicates several times that he's not satisfied with his life. She reveals to him the thing I'm thinking the entire time. You keep saying that is like, she's like, you know, when you say that Mm. you're talking about me and our family. And so I don't, I don't feel that way. And that pivot point when he is presented with that and kind of realizes that like then his antagonists become unknown again. And at the end of the day, again, like mm. it seems, feels revolutionary for 1999. He discovers his, the actual antagonists are landlords and cops. Great American men. Right. Who, and, and it, totally. And, and men who act on their Im- impulsive entitlement. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, he's like, ah, oh, fuck. Like that's. <laughs> Like, I don't think that the depiction of the crime and the murder is sensationally handled. I don't think that it's, no. you know, it's not exploitative in any way. Like it is, you're right, Sarah, like it, it happens yeah. all the time and it's very realistic. And we get her POV and I right. yes. was very struck by that because I feel like the killer's POV is one of the hallmarks of the slasher yes. and it really does feel like a reversal of that to me. Did you ever see that Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert special or clip from the special that they did in 1980 about slasher flicks? No. I think I've probably seen bits of it somewhere, but like, no, I've never watched the whole thing. I know that Gene Siskel like specifically was like very angry at Betsy Palmer for being in Friday the 13th mm-hmm. for some reason. <laughs> I would love to see that. Well, so they both really hated slasher movies and they did this, you know, in the late seventies, obviously like a spate of slash that was kind of the rise of the slasher flick and the summer slasher movie. And they did this special mm-hmm. on it in 1980 because they were both, um, they were both very concerned about what slasher flicks were presenting in terms of violence against women. Mm-hmm. And fair enough. Their hypothesis was that, you know, because the slasher flick was the first, this is based on, you know, some, a film scholar might disagree with me on this, but this is what I gleaned from watching this, this <laughs> special, that the slasher mm-hmm. flick was the first moment in cinema where the audience was being asked to align with the serial killer. Mm. So they were being, mm. they were seeing the serial killer murder, you know, obviously a whole collection of people, but always the first person that they killed was the hot blonde slut who, yeah made men very mad and that it was in direct response to the women's liberation movement that it appealed to all yeah. of these men going to the movies that were pissed off that women were fighting for their rights and women were kind of rising up. And, you know, part of that being the POV that like when you were being killed, you'd obviously be watching the woman be murdered and you got to kind of be titillated by that. And I think it's interesting mm-hmm. that you mentioned Sarah, that POV coming from Samantha's perspective, because I picked up on that again this time. And it reminded me of that mm-hmm. TV show, Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. You know, it obviously opens with a very distressing home invasion and a rape, but it is unusual in comparison to most depictions of rape and sexual violence on screen, because you see, as with this movie, you see her looking at the assailant. And that yeah. is a really, really powerful switch in perspective. So I don't feel like it was handled in this movie in a, in any way that was made me feel uncomfortable as a female viewer, you know, where, where we're obviously so often are. Yeah. Well, in most movies that like portray a rape, like quasi sympathetically are doing so mm-hmm. as a means of like offering men an opportunity to exact just violence. Mm-hmm. And like, this is not doing mm-hmm. that at all. This is just mm-hmm. like, look at what happened. What a great point, Alex. Yeah. It's so, it's like, so, like so many rapes are like, 
you know, the same as the women in refrigerators thing. They're there to create background for a guy to then go out and like mm-hmm. shoot a bunch of random New Yorkers, for example. Right, right, right. Exa- yeah, exactly. You know, I find there was something interesting about watching this movie and thinking about the narrative of what men get to be in stories. And I think with mm-hmm. white men in particular, and maybe white working class men or men who sort of consider themselves in some way to be like some kind of nationalistic hero, they're so used to seeing themselves in stories and they're so used to seeing a part for them in everything that if the story mm-hmm. only has a bad guy, they get pissed off because they're like, well, you're saying that I'm the bad guy because right. there's no other option for them. Whereas in movies like this, like I remember when um the Stanford swimmer Brock Turner rape trial happened. And I remember thinking at the time how unusual it was that, I mean, he obviously had his defenders, but there were so many people who were very supportive of Chanel Miller as of course we should have been. And it was great to see, but to me, it wasn't anything to do with, you know, people suddenly getting it. It was because there was two male witnesses who right. came by, the two Swedish men on bikes, who intervened and who sat on him until the police arrived. And I always felt at the time that if those two men had been women, that the narrative would have right. been really different because I think that the culture would have responded by saying, well, I think that they've staged it or I put it to you yeah. that, you know, he rejected one of them. So they've got... Because women get- are all implicitly in a cabal together right, right, right. to fake... Because if you, if you were like, hey, Sarah, psst, psst, help me fake a, a rape claim, I would be like, but of course, we love to do That's that. That's what we it's do. Fun. We're just women. We just do that all the time. What I love about making fake rape allegations is that you can only benefit, like your public image Mm -hmm. can only be improved. There's so much money in it too. So much money. Yes, that's true. There is so much money in that. Yeah. So because the two cyclists rode past and they were men and they, so not only did they get to validate what they'd seen, because of course men's testimony is more compelling than women's because they don't have any, there's no ulterior reason why a man would make up a story about another man. They're not engaged in the war. Yeah. But men looking at that story could then they suddenly had a villain, Brock Turner, mm. and two heroes. Mm-hmm. And if you have hmm. two heroes in a story about sexual violence, then they get to say, well, I would, mm. of course, be the hero. That's what I would do. Right. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. What an alarmingly persuasive point. Totally. Well, the idea then that like rape in movies and rape in pop culture is a device for men to go and exact revenge against other men in a way yeah. that if mm. that role was being performed by a woman, mm-hmm. not quite so exciting for men. Like, so when I talk about sexual violence and I talk about, you know, even, even talking about like women fighting back against it or rising up against it, there seems to be a fear from a lot of men that if you get to be in control of who the rapists are, mm-hmm. then that is bad news for me. Whereas if I, a man, gets to be in control of who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, then I can always make myself one of the good guys. And so watching a movie like this, Kevin Bacon gets to be so relatable to men who love to think Mm. of themselves as, you know, great defenders of women. And it's it's very interesting that you point out, Sarah, that no women in this movie see ghosts. No women, except for Maggie at the end with a knife, no women are really part of this avenging angel narrative Hmm. because Hmm. if you involve the women in it somehow that makes it less safe for the men yes that's i didn't think of that and i think that's completely true yeah and also it occurs to me now as you're saying that that you know part of 
his role in this is that Kevin Bacon, like he wasn't there. He never had any hard choices to make and he's automatically exempt Mm -hmm. from any of that. And if you Mm -hmm. identify with him, you don't have to think about what you would do because you're like, I'm Kevin Bacon. I show up later when you get a mummy in six months, which like not to be a stickler about this. And I'm certainly no mummy expert, but that seems fast (laughs) to get a mummy. Chicago's kind of a moist city. Oh yeah, I hadn't thought about that. There's something really interesting about showing that like the murder is not necessarily it's not like a premeditated like let's get this woman down and murder her. It is just like mm-hmm. the levels yeah. of entitlement compounding mm-hmm. quickly. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, Sarah. I think in the Mystic Pizza episode is like because everything is centered from a male, a male perspective. Like men don't know that like when they, when they do a thing that they think is innocuous and it ends up sort of like, you know, getting someone unemployed or physically hurting somebody or whatever. Yeah. And it made me think of God, however many relationships I was in, in my twenties where I thought I was like passionately making a point and I was yelling and that is terrifying. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, because it's like, mm-hmm. this is a man. And if this situation goes wrong, this person could fucking kill me. Mm-hmm. And so like seeing that that was also, it wasn't like, mm-hmm. let's, Let's find the creepy guy who did the bad thing. It's like, let's find some people who did by their very nature. It resulted in a murder. Mm. This is a point I come back to a lot that like we I love it when media depicts murder as something that happens when dumbasses end up in a situation that escalates unexpectedly, like in the movie Jawbreaker. I love that movie. Yeah. And just how like, don't be afraid of like the conniving mastermind who's going to like lure you in with some big plan. Like be afraid, like just don't go to frat parties. Don't let your son join a frat. I mean, you shouldn't be too invasive if your kids are in college, but like, do you want him to get dead in a hazing accident or commit a sexual assault? To a degree, like you can be as a woman scared of all men at all times. And Again, you know, when women say things like that and some men get very agitated by it, it's like, well, we don't know which one of you are the bad ones, you know, like we have to be, and you're always telling us to be on our guard and be safe and and to to make sensible choices. So I guess that means around you too. Oh, you don't like that? You don't like that that includes you. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? But for me, the scariest men are the ones who on top of all of that risk already are the ones who are most protected by society, most mm-hmm. protected by their entitlement and most likely to have mm-hmm. a team of people around them, like in this movie, which we know is a reflection mm-hmm. of real life of parents and community members who are willing to do anything to protect these boys and their special, special futures. Right. 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 And the idea that they have something to lose and it would be such a shame. You know, the fact that she's intellectually disabled as well, I think is really key in this because intellectually disabled women are 90% more likely than non-intellectually disabled women to Mm. be sexually assaulted. And she's clearly the child of a single mum as well, Mm. who has a, you know, her own blue collar job. Like she's discardable Mm. in the culture. The only time I started to suspect Kevin Dunn in anything is when the guy who at the beginning of the movie introduces as his wife using a derogatory term for native women. He then is upset that they're referring to this girl who's missing by the R word. And I'm like, Mm. this guy, Mm -hmm. this is a weirdly out of character thing for this man who was dropping that term at the beginning of the movie. And then you realize that it's because like he's got the pressure on him. Oh, He's not a woke Willie. He's a different guy. He's got some secrets. By the way, I like 
<laughs> I already feel weird about saying don't go to frat parties. So like, that's great. That's how complicated it is. To, it's like, because you should be able to go wherever you want. But I don't know. I'm, I'm afraid of fraternities. I'm afraid of fraternities and I don't even live there. See, people seem to die a lot in there. Yeah, I think it's just any time like more than one man are like we're on the same team no matter what mm. like yeah don't go in a room yeah what a good point <laughs> we've sworn a sacred oath and we drink a lot <laughs> it's the intensity of masculinity as well that is so frightening like i mean sarah you know and alex you would know this too because the other thing as well is that i think that we need to be more honest about the fact that when we talk about men being frightening for women we should say to them, but haven't you ever been afraid of men? Yeah. Because all men are afraid of men too. Oh God. Because it's the, it's the mass bonding oh, yeah. of men and the realization that patriarchy and one of the ways that patriarchy functions to keep men in service to it is to make them align themselves to each other in a way that it also tells women we need to be separate from each other. That if we collude with each other, then we're a dangerous threat. And that is very, very bad for patriarchy. So knowing as a woman, I think that so many of the men that you meet, even if in interpersonal relationships with them, they seem fine, they seem safe, that actually when it comes to aligning themselves with a fraternity, that they will not protect you, they'll protect themselves. And protecting themselves means sticking with the boys. Right. And that's exactly what happens in this movie too, that we have these four examples of four different kinds of men and there's the dominant cop slash landlord mm. and his football star son who mm. are like both of them a lot more kind of sinister and very clearly like sociopathic and then there's the two sort of softer men i mean even even kevin dunn's physicality is mm -hmm. very different to the cop he's wearing a freaking mock turtleneck you know and it's, know. it's cranberry it's so christmassy he praises his son for being more like the cop because of the kind of woman that he's drawing at yes. age whatever that that was such a wild yeah it's a stir of echoes through the whole movie yeah he says like that his son <laughs> has been ahead of him since he was 14 and the like quality of tail he's able to get. He definitely used the word tail. And that, and that's great. Like that really sets it up. You're mm. like, well, mm. there's two really scary forms of masculine violence happening right. there. And one is the the overt yeah. one that's assaulting the girl. And the other is the one that's too afraid to stand up to the guy and stop it from happening. And we're always told yeah. that yeah. men protect women, you know, that, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. a most 99% of men would never hurt women. They would always do anything to intervene. They'd always be Kevin Bacon. But actually the reality is that that is not true. Well, it's part of the reason we all feel like we're losing our, at least me, feel like we're losing our minds in one way or another, because all the people we watched, watch generations of fucking movies where the Nazis were the bad guys are now like, eh. uh -huh. and it's like when yeah. presented with, because there was yeah. no, I'm not saying there was no opportunity to be a Nazi until recently, <laughs> but there was no opportunity to, to be a Nazi and be like, yeah, I, I have all the same beliefs. We just call it yeah. a different thing. And, uh -huh. you know, I am still, even though I know intellectually why it's happening. I still am, have just lived a lifetime of every man around me being like, fuck Nazis, like whatever. And it's like mm. presented mm -hmm. with it under a different brand. Like, yeah, well, actually, like they're making some good points. I do like that they say what they think. The only times I've gotten like scarily the shit kicked out of me by men, me getting the shit kicked out of me was secondary to the fact that one was performing for another. Mm. I was the show and mm -hmm. one guy was performing to another 
to show how strong you know he is in one way or another and like i just happened to be there Mm -hmm. that's the scary other side of a lot of this is like i think everyone thinks that it's like an evil premeditated like the bad thing will be an evil premeditated thing and no it'll actually be a very normal thing Mm. And also that like group dynamics or like duo friendship, like anytime you have more than one person, it just gets exponentially more complicated and more, especially teenagers. It really seems like additional people are much more likely to help escalate a situation than be a voice of reason. Mm. I remember this amazing essay that was written, um, was by someone wrote it anonymously. They were a former swimmer and they were kind of on track to be in the Olympics. It was an American swimmer and she was being harassed by one of her teammates and she tried to complain about it to the coach, to people around her. But of course she was just told repeatedly, no, you need to like think of the team. Mm-hmm. Just being a guy, you know, like just ignore it, et cetera, et cetera. And it became so distressing for her that she like so many women whether or not it's working in academia whether or not it's working in care services paramedics like any kind of high intensity environments but also environments where men really also get to excel she ended up leaving because she was like no one is protecting me against this and I can't endure this as an additional thing just so that I get to have my dream basically she said how many women have walked away from things that they loved. How many poets have we missed out on? How many artists, Mm -hmm. how many great athletes, because it just became too hard for them. And we, we like, we have this complete like drain of women's talent because the world that we live in doesn't consider our futures Mm. to be as worthy of protection as the potential of a man. And Mm -hmm. someone said to me a few years ago, actually about this Brock Turner case, this woman had this great quote where she said, um, you know, I'm realizing that when it comes to rape culture, girls have a past and boys have a potential. Right. Wow. Wow. I feel like implicit in that statement is the idea that trauma doesn't also destroy someone's life. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's fascinating in that, like, as much as like a media theory and criticism has been like a part of my life from the beginning of watching things, you know, I have had blind spots where it's like, yeah, I similarly think that we need to have like inclusion and we need to have like more people on screen who represent different experiences. But like I had not entirely thought about the fact that like by having essentially like male is hero, male can do no wrong as the vast, almost 100% of the time, white straight male is all of these things hadn't considered what that does by way of a suggestion of permission to every sort of behavior Mm. to anyone who's consuming that media is that like, no matter what, like as long as your intention in your head is good and you're doing the right thing, you can kind of act in whatever way. And, you know, you had however many movies that are sort of now being criticized in pop culture for like having portrayed not just like what was effectively rape, but what was rape by way of sort of like the primary characters Mm -hmm. in the, in the films, Mm. et cetera. And I, I hadn't, you know, I, I largely just thought for a long time that it was like, well, give that white straight male role to someone else and not like, we also have to really <laughs> dismantle Stop what writing these heroic rapists, right, exa- guys. Yeah, ex- exactly. Mm. And stop portraying this in a way where, you know, to your point, Clem, the where someone can watch this movie and think that, well, they would have been the good guy if the circumstances were right. I like the fact that like, in order for Kevin Bacon to be the good guy, he literally has to be hypnotized. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. It's a great point. But he also, like, so that's how he becomes the big hero. 
But weirdly, at the same time, he also becomes a total cock to his wife. <laughs> yes. As is tradition. He's mean and, and abusive. But it's sort of like in the function of the story, that's okay because it's in, it's in service of a bigger purpose. Mm-hmm. Well, you know how you have to like malign or ignore an alive woman in your life to save a dead woman in yeah. your life. It's like classic detective physics. Well, I do. I do. And I'm not excuse. You were absolutely right. And his behavior is a behavior in that situation was abusive, but I like that. She calls that. Like, I like that. Yeah. She's like, Hey, like you've never done this before. If you ever do this mm-hmm. again, I'm out. Like, I like that. They, it felt like there was a weird opportunity to make that. an. I mean, it, like to your point, like in hero development, this is a thing that happens. But like, I do like that they were like, listen, like this behavior is still not cool. By the way, I looked up this director who wrote this movie, who is David Cop or Cope. I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce it, but he wrote Death Becomes Her. No. <gasps> Like, what is going on? So he wrote Death Becomes Her at the same time he was writing Jurassic Park and Carlito's Way. What? Nice death work. Well, and Clementine, speaking to what you're saying about these stories that have to make space for men to be the heroes, like this is why I love rape revenge movies, which are a very complicated genre, which Carol Clover also talks about in Men, Women and Chainsaws. And one of her points is that like I Spit on Your Grave is like a very upsetting, very exploitative movie. But at the same time, it allows our rape victim to then kill all these men in a Mm. row while we're watching and cheering her on. Mm. And it's like, that's really fucked up because then it makes it a woman's responsibility to hunt down her rapist and just Mm -hmm. like exonerate the system from not protecting her. But I love those movies. I love to watch rapists get killed and people who help them. So yeah. Well, and it's a, it's a very like obvious fantasy for a lot of women in particular because who wouldn't want to do that you know yes like i agree you know women shouldn't have to be turned into murderers but a lot of women want to murder their rapist (laughs) but you know (laughs) it's a classic joker situation (laughs) it's kind of like you know you mentioned before alex about the nazi thing and i loved that episode that you guys did on raiders of the lost Mm. ark i haven't even seen raiders of the lost ark and so i went into it thinking oh am i gonna you know when you haven't seen the movie you're like am i is it gonna be spoiled for me or whatever but i found it so fascinating and that bit especially about it not actually Hmm. being about nazism Mm -hmm. that people rallied against but it being foreign germans and it yeah just illuminates so much it's like how can people you know, I guess as well in, in terms of the themes of this movie and then looking at the last 10 years yeah. with Me Too and with this lie that everyone kind of is told and that and so many people are f- almost forcibly made to participate in that there's, we, we've got good men, which make up 99% of the world's men at this really amazing, good, decent men who would never, ever do anything to hurt women. And then we've got like monsters men and so what that means right. is that people like Brett Kavanaugh and Donald Trump and Harvey Weinstein, yeah. Harvey Weinstein's a monster because he's gone to jail, but Donald Trump and Brett Kavanaugh and every other fucking politician in America. Brett Kavanaugh is an upstanding girls basketball coach. What a nice man. What a Kevin Dunn. They can't possibly be the bad guys. They're the good guys. And I'd argue the only reason anyone turned on Weinstein outside of great reporting, bravery people coming out or whatever is because he got sick. Like he's physically ill because hmm. like the country hate the country hates monsters, hates like what they think hmm. is like evil monsters, but also hates sick people. 
I'm like so depressed by the very good points yeah. everyone's making. I'm like, that's also true. We do. We hate them. To all of these points, the thing that like when people are like, you know, pretty soon it's going to be a handmaiden's tale or like or like uh, Octavia Butler really saw like saw what our future could look like. It's like we live in these realities right now. Yeah. Like you're just yes. talking about it coming to your door. Like we live in these yeah. realities right yeah, exactly. now. Like go to fucking any downtown of any city in this country that looks mm-hmm. like a bomb has gone off, like a fucking globalization bomb has gone off, taken every fucking job and you just have mass homelessness mm-hmm. on the streets that people drive through and pretend like it isn't there because they know that structurally mm-hmm. nothing ethically is going to happen in this country at all. And they're like, mm-hmm. wow, our future is bad. Mm-hmm. Our, our fucking present is apocalyptic and fascistic. No, Alex, the future. Forget the present. We can't <laughs> help anyone now. We need to develop little chips let's do that isn't it like the same though like mental gymnastics of being like i'd be the good guy it's like talking about the future yes as if it's not right now what would i do in nazi germany (laughs) what are you gonna do today oh my god star of echoes really did it (laughs) yes always with the great choices clementine (laughs) i'm always bringing the the toxic masculinity to you guys earlier on you mentioned Johnny Depp, who I always call John Depp now because I feel like Johnny allows (laughs) people to kind of like, like, oh, well, he's just like my childhood friend, you know, Johnny Depp. It's like the willingness that people have to. So this is kind of like going back to the themes of the movie. And there would be people we know in every community when young, particularly privileged boys like this are exposed as having definitely participated in some kind of terrible sexual assault. So either people will deny it or if they get to the point where they can't deny it because there's evidence of it or there's proof in some way, they will seek to justify it somehow. or They will seek to sort of like downplay it and say it's not that bad. And I feel like with, with Johnny Depp or John Depp, what was upsetting to me in addition to seeing like all of this like terrible victim shaming when it came to Amber Heard was that so much of what was outlined that he actually did that wasn't in contention that he did still attracted people overlooking it or defending it. That's kind of where I feel like a lot of my fury about this stuff comes from is that it's the constantly shifting goalposts of what society will allow to be acceptable. So we, on the one hand, we're told, you know, no one tolerates violence. No one defends men. Like there's no such thing as rape culture, but, oh, but also actually this thing did happen, but we're going to make it, it's not that big a deal, or we're going to like try and make out somehow that they consented, you know, whenever you hear like men deciding that their victims consented and that's all that they need to do is just say, oh, she consented. I guess what I'm trying to say is that like, I don't understand how we've gotten to a point where People, even in their willingness to not want to send people to jail and, you know, I'm, I don't believe in jail. So like I'm, I, Mm -hmm. I'm sympathetic to that. Like there has to be a better system than prison, but why is it just like this either or scenario where either yes, this bad thing did happen or no, nothing bad happened at all. Why can't we have honest conversations in society about like, you know what, we have like a really fucking severe disconnect between how men communicate with each other, how they emotionally express themselves and also how people perceive sex. Like why is sex this thing that anything goes as soon as the clothes come off? 
Sorry, I just feel like I totally. just ranted at you then. Totally. Or yeah, no, no, no. I think, and, and I think like, you know, so many of these, these arguments, these conversations, the John Depp and Amber Heard uh, uh, piece being a uh, amazing spectacle of this in particular are people processing another thing with the text of what's mm. happening and not knowing that they're doing that. Mm. So like, I think, you know, you would see a lot of women and I think there was like internalized misogyny, a piece of uh, this was a gigantic piece of this. And there was like people who just don't inf- understand how like the structure of patriarchal power works. Um, and you'd see them sort of side with him. And I think like a lot of that came from, or comes from the fact that on top of everything else, everyone feels gaslit all the time mm. because they are in one way or another mm. or everyone has complicated like puritanically even if they don't know feelings about sex and they project mm. that onto like some like popular discourse or like i think so much of popular discourse is about the text and then so much is about like an unseen yeah. subtext that they're not completely aware of for one reason or another because of sort of like how that narrative is projected you know sort mm. of like how how and who they identify with in a situation mm. because they don't understand sort of like what the overall subtext is mm-hmm. I think the same thing about the fucking this is such a throwaway thing and I don't mean to compare any of these things but the like about this whole try guys thing <laughs> with people being upset about the fact that he, and I understand like someone was like there's a power dynamic and he and she worked for him, whatever it's like I think so many things that that we think that there's like an actual discourse about and again I'm not comparing the mm. the herd case and this but is about like we have fucked up feelings about sex mm. because it's bad and dirty mother we're told every day by a lot of the things that we were talking about earlier in this conversation about why America is a terrifying place, why sort of patriarchy in general is a terrifying thing to live under that we're fucking crazy mm-hmm. And we're told that we are the people who are the crazy ones for thinking that. And so we assume that of every situation in one way or another, even when all the data and evidence Mm. is presented otherwise, because we're every day is a fucking 300 Mm -hmm, mm gaslightings and being told that it's not happening. It's like when Mm -hmm. you are living, you know, relatively happily, I guess, in your house with a corpse in the basement and then someone moves in across the street and they're like, do you smell that? I'm going to see about getting this corpse out of my basement. You're like, this is what houses smell like. Don't be fancy. Come on. It's damp. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just get a bath and body works candle and live with it. Yeah. And if Twitter has proven anything to us, it's 95% of everyone is not talking about the text. Yes. (laughs) And most people are also, you know, Kevin Dunn's, son yes. in that situation where they're just like turning the other way and puking if i just like cower by the window and have like a sneaky spew yeah. maybe i won't have to do anything to be a part of changing the society that we live in because i don't want to put my head above the parapet i don't want to risk the yeah. wrath mm-hmm. of the people around yeah. me who will do everything they can to make me feel crazy to punish me for speaking out and to make sure i don't do it again I I spoke up for a a friend of mine came to me a handful of years ago and was like, I need to talk with you about this guy. And I was immediately, this guy was like my professional mentor. He was where my business got, I think 20% of her income at that point. Like he was and the second she said that I was like, motherfuck like this, obviously. Mm -hmm. And it was take all of the stuff that you're saying, which is totally correct. And then make every one in the, at least I can only speak to this country, make 
every job essentially paycheck to paycheck. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm going to lose the the jobs and livelihood of all of our staff for doing, doing what was the right thing and coming out and being by, I, I you know, I believe it was the right thing being by her side, sort of talk, talking, calling this guy out, sort of losing in as a result, losing the business, whatever. It was a scary fucking time, but like you put economic insecurity on top of all of that. And yeah, I agree. I agree with you entirely. Mm. Like you have people who are just in your words. And that's the only reason I laughed sneaky spewing in the corner and you get what we're seeing. Mm. What we've all been talking about is being on the other side of having the door opened in your mind. And you're like, you see things that you see things that other people are like, I can't see them. I'm not, I'm just like, what do you mean? There's a ghost in my house. What do you mean? Patriarchy's real. And I feel maybe one of the reasons why I love this movie so much is that on some deep level, I relate to him Mm. like falling further and further into distress and a sense of like, am I crazy? Because I, I like, I can see this stuff and no one else seems to be able to even feel that Mm -hmm. it's here, but it's really nice to talk to you two. I know that we're both on the other side of that door together. (laughs) And, you know, yeah, to show people that there are doors and it is lovely to have any kind of story. And I think we use supernatural stuff as a storytelling tool a lot for this of like, you can go through big life changes after adolescence. Yeah, Mm. totally. Yeah, that's I feel like that, Sarah, that's I feel like that's our new theme a little bit. I'm really excited. about (laughs) All of these realizations can come after you're 12 years old, too. And that's fine. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so we know Kevin Bacon is a father. We know that uh, uh, Kevin Dunn is a father. We know that Kevin Dunn's a father. We know that the landlord slash cop is a father. Uh, who is the daddy? Clem, why don't you kick us off? Hmm. I mean, my impulse is to say Ileana Douglas sure. is the daddy mm-hmm. because she sure. she is like, is hot as fuck yeah. and. I hope this isn't weird to say, by the way, Sarah, I feel like you remind me a lot of her. (gasps) That no, that makes me so happy. And also she is important to me as a woman who had a wonderful career in Hollywood with her original nose, I'm sure. And you don't see a lot of that. And I have a before photo nose. (laughs) There's a sensibility about the two of you that's very similar. And I just, um, I guess I really hope that there are lots of like, confused young teenagers out there who maybe listen to your podcast and you're that awakening for them. I feel like that would be a beautiful thing for them. I'm just going to echo that. I love uh, Ileana Douglas and anything I've ever seen her in. I have a very similar response to the two of you, but just by way of there being joy, but also it being a a type of person I am attracted to, you know, quasi weirdo who talks a little funny Mm -hmm. and is, is smarter Mm -hmm. than all of the other people around her. You always (laughs) want to find the girl at the party who's making observations. Yes. Oh my God. Absolutely. (laughs) I am. And yeah, I just, all I'm doing is seconding Clem's great too. Yep. Sarah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's hard to think of anybody else. It's hard to explain why she's so great. She just is just it experience is it. But I'll say the little boy whose name I forget. Um, Jake. Jake. Because I love how he's like, I feel like he's the happiest of any creepy horror boy I've ever seen. He's just kind of like mm. living his best life mm. and he doesn't seem to be terribly traumatized by these ghosts. He just kind of like chats with them. And, you know, he certainly gets abducted and taken to a train station and stuff. So, like, it's a stressful movie for everybody. But 
it's also it feels like it's a little bit neutral on what his future is going to be like. Like we know that it's going to be difficult for him because of what our Scatman Crothers analog has explained. And this is just occurring to me now, but I feel like he's a way of dramatizing what really happens in generations of men sometimes where like you are able to like sometimes surpass your dad with the amount and kind of feelings you are able to feel in yourself because that's mm. one of the goals. Like the American dream is to surpass your parents economically, but the future liberals want is for us to, <laughs> you know, to be able to be self-aware and to flourish emotionally and therefore protect others more profoundly uh, because we were, because we could you know, parent our kids better than we were parented. That's really the great dream, I think. Yeah, that kid's solidly millennial. Mm. Yes. That kid's like living life as a yeah, millennial. Yeah, he is. <laughs> it is kind of weird, though, that Samantha couldn't just tell him that she was in the wall. <laughs> what if she did tell him and he was just like, eh. Why is it games? <laughs> tell my dad. I'm a kid. <laughs> yeah, this is too much for me. Turn the monster <laughs> Although to that point, and I, whatever, like, but to that point, like, I think she tries and mm -hmm. he's just like, and, and the dad at least, not the, not the kid, but the dad's just like, I can't see you. Like, I can't see the truth yet. Tell me cryptically mm. in a way I can understand. <laughs> well, it, it's like how you have to tell a, an adult white man anything. You have to like incept him because if you come out and say it i'll freak out yeah, you have to up manage, and you have to totally. turn it into a reason to do home improvements it all makes sense yeah. beautifully done <laughs> Clem, what do you want people to engage or buy or know of your output uh well if i can say that i over here i host a weekly advice podcast called dear clementine Beautiful. you can find it on all of your podcast apps. And I guess, I don't know, like just follow me on Instagram, Clementine underscore Ford. I am very obsessed at the moment with this book that I'm writing. So be prepared to read a lot of stuff about marriage and why it is a bad option for you, mm -hmm. young lady out there waiting to be proposed to. Yeah. I married the second time. It's an institution that was built to benefit me exclusively. And I love, I read and engage all of your posts and feel like I learn oh, a tremendous thanks. amount from <laughs> everything you say. Always. I was celebrating sort of the way you handle a lot of criticism earlier, but I, I'm very much looking forward to the book and I'm yes. excited to, uh, I'm excited to bring it in and share it with the world when we're able to do so. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And I love you guys. Oh. And we love, love you so, so much. We love you so it's much. so wonderful to have you back. All right, everybody, that's it for this week's episode on Stir of Echoes. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks to Clementine Ford for being here and talking about Stir of Echoes with us. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the episode and uh, editing the episode. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for editing the episode. We just put out a new bonus, like I said in our introduction. The bonus is about all spooky things in October. You can find that on Patreon. You can find that on Apple subscriptions. And we're going to put out a list of movies that you might want to spend the rest of October diving into. Next week, we'll talk about Your Next with the great Akila Green. It's so cool that we have Akila back on the show. I love it, and I love that we're talking about Your Next. I think that's it for this week's episode of You Are Good. We really appreciate that you're here. Thank you so much for being here. You, my friend, are good. <laughs>